Tom Snow has made an indelible impact as one of the most successful composers in modern popular music. He is a Grammy, Oscar, Golden Globe, and Tony-nominated writer whose music has been recorded by diverse artists such as Barbara Streisand, Linda Ronstadt, Ray Charles, Dolly Parton, Sergio Mendez, Bonnie Raitt, Peebo Bryson, and many, many more. In addition to three albums he recorded as an artist, Tom Snow has mainly concentrated on his collaborations with many of the most respected songwriters and artists throughout the past several decades, and his track record clearly speaks for itself. But before most of his songs could become hits, Tom had worked with extremely talented session singers in order to achieve the best quality demos to circulate. His latest project is one that is very near and dear to his heart. On the recently released limited edition CD titled Original Demos, Tom has assembled 12 tracks from his archives, featuring his recordings with the extraordinary session vocalist, the late, great Warren Weeby. Inside Music Cast is pleased to welcome Tom Snow. Hey, Tom, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's, a, yeah. it's an honor. But, you know, Tom, it's an honor to have you here on Inside Music Cast. And, you know, as Eddie and I and, and so many of your fans know that your credentials are are so deep, you know, let's, let's talk about a couple of those, like countless daytime Emmys, Grammy nominations, uh, Golden Globe and Tonys and BMI Millionaire Awards. I mean, the list goes on and on. And, and you know, you signed an early solo deal with Capitol and, and put out two solo albums, you know, Taking It In Stride and, and, of course, Tom Snow. But shortly after that, you know, you solely focused on songwriting. And looking back, has your path been deliberate, accidental, or both? <laughs> well, I, you know, it's sort of, it's sort of zigged and zagged and zigged again, and then I, and then zagged one more time into what I sh- was meant to be doing when I started writing songs for other people. Mm-hmm. But the, fir- the first zig <laughs> was when I uh, attended the Berkeley College of Music. I went there from six- 1965 to 1969. Sure. And was given the Distinguished Alumnus Award in 2000. I, um, you know, I mean, you have to imagine that time that... Uh, not only in Boston was you know where Berkeley was located was it was one of the best jazz schools at that point, sure, but across the way in Cambridge and all those areas there was a serious folk music scene going on um at uh, Unicorn and the club forty seven so it, without uh wandering too much my my intention and dream was to um attend Berkeley and become you know another bill Evans yeah, right sure. <laughs> And but um, that that little dream burst. I think the second day I was there, when I saw the kind of talent that was around me and and, and kids my age who could really play jazz piano. So, wow! Um, it's uh, and in those days, in 1965, it was a, a place I think oriented more towards the performer player person. It's quite quite different today, and it's it's huge and it's it's got all kinds of things to offer, but I, I just, I just sat in on a couple of jam sessions and I went, my, I don't have no idea how to do that. And if they <laughs> can already do that. So I uh, changed my major to, um, a composition major, right. you know, just studying jazz and classical composition. 
there was no song program there at all. So um, I also was involved uh, with through a friend who had introduced me to a, a student at the Harvard Divinity School named Graham Parsons, and he Graham was looking to put together uh, a, a group. He was being managed by Marty Ehrlichman at the time, and mm-hmm. um, this friend of mine who who knew Graham told me about it, and I went over and I met Graham and. We went up to the student union, freshman student union, and there was a big room with a piano in it. It was empty, and he, he brought his guitar out and started singing some early songs, and I could have, like, earballed my way along. And long story short is that I joined up with him mm-hmm. um, and uh, started going down to New York on weekends. With uh, By that time, we had uh, added a couple other players, uh, Ian Dunlap, a bassist, and John Luis, uh, a guitar player, and we... And now we're off to New York, and there's all this sort of, you know, um, what's the expression when you when you think you've got something dancing in front of your eyes? I can't remember what it, um, dandelions, or just just dreams of gigantic <laughs> success, because you right. know, we were recording at, the, at 30 Rock, and Marty Ehrlichman's walking around in, in, in a, you know, a camel hair floor-length coat, and, <laughs> you know, I didn't even know how to turn on a Hammond B3 organ which I was supposed to be um, proficient at <laughs> when we recorded these these first early demos. But eventually that zag, I had to zig back to Berkeley because the Vietnam War was um, uh, running hot. I, w- I had just turned 18, and, um, you know, if I, if I dropped out of school, I wouldn't, uh, they, I think they'd just come and draft me. So I, I, I wanted to finish my education anyway, so, so I, I bid Graham and, and the boys... Farewell and went back to Berkeley. And um, they actually say a couple things about Berkeley people. They say that there's two types of musicians. And a buddy of mine told me this. He said, first you get the guys that can get into Berkeley. They're amazing, and then they drop out, and then then they're still amazing. Then you get the guys that go in. They're amazing. They study. They're at the top of their class. Do they graduate, and then they're still amazing. So, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> it's just, it just it was a great great time for me. Boston in in um, in the last last part of the '60s was a Kind of, but still obviously provincial, but kind of funky town. I mean, it, it, it's nothing like it is now. It's, they, yeah. they've, you know, it's transformed into a beautiful city. And uh, you know, Berkeley's had two buildings on the corner of Newbury uh, Street and Gloucester uh-huh. uh, on on two corners facing each other. And there was you know brick buildings, three story you know walk up. Um, in, in the spring, they'd open the uh, the windows and the recording ensemble. You could just be strolling down Newbury Street and hear them blowing a an Arif Martin chart, a Quincy chart, or you know one of their own. Um, her palm. So I mean, it was really an exciting sort of musical atmosphere mm-hmm. um, from that standpoint of view. But um, you know, I just had to stick in there and uh, stay with what I was doing. And uh, the composition uh, department, they weren't terribly happy about me. Writing songs. I mean, they sort of thought that you know that was beneath um, beneath them. So yeah. <laughs> I used to yeah. I used to write a song just to fulfill <laughs> a, a big band arranging requirement. I'd go ahead and just write a tune myself, mm-hmm. and I'd bring it in, um, and I have the the vocal lead line written out, and then I you know I had, I had the brass and, and rhythm arrangement written out, but. Um, no vocalist. <laughs> Somehow it, it filled the requirement. So. <laughs> yeah. I, I I had a good time at Berkeley. I really did, and they, you know, and they gave me so much um, to uh, um, so 
sort of supplement my career. And I, when you know, even though when I arrived in L.A., um, there were there were things being said about Berkeley people then that were, oh, why don't you go get a job in a cocktail lounge or something? <laughs> yeah, they, right. If you didn't sort of have that, you know, rough and ready folk rock quality to your music, and you, and you played something yeah. more complex than a, you know, a triad, mm-hmm. you were sort of like shunned. But yeah. not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's go back just a little bit, and we understand yeah, that sorry. you're you're uh, born and raised a, a Jersey boy, and, and your folks. Uh, were they musical as well? I mean, did they were they the ones that pointed you into music? Yeah, well, um, yeah, I was born in Princeton, mm-hmm. New Jersey, mm-hmm. and um, was surrounded by um, aunts and uncles and um, cousins who all had um, Ivy League uh, backgrounds and, um, and big three: Harvard, Yale, Princeton, so forth and so on. Um, and my my father um, was an actor. He was after the war. He he and my mother settled in uh, Princeton for a while, and he he was in the Air Transport Command during World War II. So he and another guy, um, I don't know his name, uh, bought a little fun, uh, little cute little rural uh, two runway grass runway with corn growing in the middle of it, um, sort of little commuter airport out in Rockyville, mm-hmm. New Jersey, and uh, they bought a bunch of surplus airplanes. After the war, you could buy them for uh, really on the cheap. Yeah, and he, you know, so he taught. He taught flying and then started getting involved and in working with friends at um, acting in shows and stuff in Princeton. Um, but at a certain point around, I think I was five years old, he had discovered Sarasota, Florida. And um, the reason why he was looking down there was that my, mother's, my mother was uh, quite anemic at that point, and she was having a hard time dealing with northeast weather. So, so we would stay in Princeton through Christmas and then get on the train and uh, go down to Sarasota, and uh, he then became, he, my father, and my mother got very involved in the, in the community theater there. Call, it's called The Players. Okay. And he was, in his time, during his life, he was the, you know, he, he was the big star down there. And they would, um, they would do musicals. They did, um, you know, South Pacific, and obviously not first runs, because this was sort of community out of, out of, out of New York theater. But I, as I grew up, I I would see my father up on stage and being Luther Billis in South Pacific, or um, I forget some of the other the other things. But he, he sang and uh, and he acted. So it was. I, and they had a lot of friends who were sort of in the theatrical community. So there was a sort of a mix of slightly bohemian types and regular sort of country club Republicans. Yeah. <laughs> all, all, all wonderful people. So there was a lot of music going on in the house. My father played the piano by ear, and he would entertain and sing, um, you know, Noel Coward songs or um, Duke. He actually played some Duke Ellington tunes. And, cool. You know, I just, I got kind of turned on to the whole idea of um, music and a piano at a very young age. You know, just to finish that point, I... I I um, when I was in the third grade, um, in a little classroom, in this little school down down in Florida called the Out of Door School. It was a, a it was a great little funky school that had um, semi-retired New England prep school teachers, you know, <laughs> still teaching. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I have the classes would be like maybe six or eight or nine people tops. And um, one day, uh, the teacher, my third homeroom third grade teacher. Mrs. Matt, bless your heart, 
brought a friend of hers in who was a sort of Austrian lady who was very into the classical music. And so <laughs> they said, we are going to play with the Beethoven now. Okay, okay. And I want each one of you to choose an instrument that you want to pretend to play. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, apologies about that. So, <laughs> so I, I, I wanted to, I think, I guess I may, aren't we, aren't, isn't a person eight years old when they're in the third grade, I think? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yes. Yeah. Second, let's say, let's yeah. say eight years old. So I, yeah. I thought the trumpet would be a great thing to play. So um, we all had a had, had a lot of fun. And then I, you know, when I got home, I announced to my mother that I wanted to learn to play the trumpet. Mm-hmm. And she said, "Well, you, you're not going to learn to play the trumpet in this house. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a piano right over there in the living room. Right I'd be there. happy to let you learn." <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so there was a. There really wasn't anything other than the piano that, mm-hmm. for me to learn. So, well, you mentioned you know, like you know some of the music your father had turned you on to, like Duke Ellington, Ellington, for example. But you know, growing up, uh, what what music were you playing at home on the radio? I mean, what was the music that was really grabbing you as a youngster that really kind of pulled you into music? Was it jazz or was it other forms of music? Well, it was it was a, yeah, it was jazz for sure. Um, my father used to. He loved Errol Garner and and uh, and um, Dee Wee Russell mm-hmm. and all those great guys. Sort of that late fifties into the sixties kind of you know mainstreamers, not not beboppers. Um, right. So there was that, and then um, there was the you know the let's see. I was born in forty seven, so like by mid fifties and all that stuff, I was. Um, Loving Jerry Lee Lewis and and loving Little Richard, yeah. I, w- I wasn't that big a Elvis fan, but my sister six years older than I, and she had a uh, you know so she was sort of really in the thick of, of teeny boptum, and she had uh, one of those old forty five record players that had the big spindle, you know, sure. you could put a stack. Oh yeah, and yeah, it was, it was great. And she had a, a big old uh, uh, forty five collection. So when she went off to boarding school, um, she she couldn't take that with her and so i i just i just um <laughs> helped myself to her record collection and started <laughs> listening to all that the great stuff and dot records and and um you know from that point on and um i was just sort of getting more and more immersed in, in loving pop songs and loving r&b songs i didn't listen to a whole lot of country um and then you know i loved theater songs because i always heard those at home and uh, so it was a kind of an eclectic Blend, you know. Yeah, it's neat. Hey, don't don't you just love musical hand me downs when you get tons of records or an old stuff? You know, <laughs> it just oh, gets... it's great. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's really it was really nice having a having an older sister. Yeah. <laughs> well, after after Berkeley, you uh, you packed up and you headed to to L.A. You were around twenty two, and yep. ha- had you been there before before going out there and, and actually making uh, the dive and moving out there? Yeah, I, I took one quick trip out. Um, to see if, to try to um, patch up a relationship I was having with a with a girl who was fr- um, who had worked I'd met in actually in Martha's Vineyard and um, she was working in Boston as a veterinarian and then she that we were, we had our relationship during my senior year at Berkeley and um, it was up and down and so she finally got tired of uh, whatever it was I was doing that was bothering her and drove out to um, Los Angeles. So I, you know, despondent and nervous and, and heartbroken, I got on an airplane to go out and see if I could save things, and I, I guess I did. So, so I, and that was like, let's say, maybe April of uh, 
69. Okay. So I, you know, and I'd seen a bit of, of what L.A. was all about, but basically it was Venice and um, Santa Monica. I, when I got first got there, I thought the Santa Monica Mall was the the Hollywood Boulevard Walk of Fame. <laughs> I was I was going, where, where are the stars? I don't see any stars. <laughs> where are they? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so she, she had driven across country in her VW Bug cool. with two dogs and her stuff. <laughs> so when I finally um, packed it in and left Boston and, and announced to my parents that I was going out to, you know, Los Angeles to be with my love, um, off I went, and I, you know, she she had found a place, um, a temporary place to for us to live with some other guys, and um, and then we eventually, uh, the two of us, the two dogs, a guitar, she had photographs, lab stuff, all packed into this VW Bug. <laughs> we drove around from L.A. all the way up the coast of San Francisco and back down again, and slept on the beaches and stuff like that, trying to figure out where would be the place, you know, we'd settle in. Obviously, for me, there was no question it had to be Los Angeles because uh, by that time in 1969, the, the music business, fortunately, had moved its whole creative uh, department out, out to California. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Um, and it, it's a lot easier to starve and, and sleep outdoors in California than it, than it ever would be <laughs> That's true. in New York City. <laughs> That's true. That's a very good point. <laughs> yeah, so... So that was kind of fun, you know. It's a typical sort of just you know twenty two whatever beating around in a VW Bug and so forth. Yes. So when was it at uh, you were there in Santa Monica or LA scene or whatever, and and that's when you met uh, Michael. Is it uh, Fondelier? Fondelier. Yeah, yeah, Fondelier. And you know you started working and playing some gigs with him and that kind of stuff. And uh, uh-huh. tell yeah. us about um, what happened at this point because it it really pointed you towards uh, your first record deal. Yeah, it was it was um, quite interesting. So I I met Michael um, at uh, Viscount at, uh, Records, uh, V I S C O U N T, which was then mm-hmm. as a, a, a I believe a Columbia Records chain, and I was right on the mall, and he was already working there. He was a local kid from Chatsworth, and so I got this job, and uh, you know, in the record store, and um, <clears throat> one day he came in with a demo in his hand. I said, "What's that?" He said, "Oh, it's just a demo I just made over." A, I don't know, some studio. And I'm like, my God, a professional demo. Wow. So he puts it on, and it's a song called Salt Lake City that he wrote himself, and I thought, this guy can write. So um, I said, look, would you be interested in, you know, uh, collaborating on songs and becoming famous? <laughs> you know, or whatever. Yeah. And so we ended up um, moving into a house in, uh, in actually Ocean Park area, which is, for all the world, it's Venice. But, uh, right. And um, I, the girlfriend was kind of in and out, in and out, and finally gone. You know, it was a troubled relationship. So Michael and I just began concentrating on writing songs. And then um, in those days in Venice, you could go down to, um, oh, gosh, I can't think of it, whatever main drag is, and knock on um, restaurant uh, doors and ask if, they wouldn't mind if we came in and played, and maybe they, they might uh, give us a little something to eat or something. And you know, you have to imagine restaurants where people are sitting around old, big old wooden cape, cape empty <laughs> cable schools. You know, this is when right. the era when they were right. with you know the typical sort of hippy dippy, you know, candle stuff, all that. And we just started writing some songs, and we did a cover of um, mm-hmm, uh, "You Don't Know." Oh God, about. 
baby, uh, I like what you got. Or anyway, just some cool covers. And then <laughs> his brother, that was really good, wasn't that? <laughs> <laughs> I like really that. Really coherent. <laughs> That's cool, man. That's cool. There's a hit right there. I know. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, Michael was just, uh, he's a wonderful, he's a wonderful talent, a very, very artistic guy. And, and he had, he had been one of the original members of the band that eventually became Spirit. Oh, okay. Um, so yeah. he went to school and knew um, <clears throat> Mark Andes and uh, Randy California and those guys. Yeah. But um, those guys all moved to New York. So, I mean, that kind of left Michael out in the cold. And then we, we, we picked it up and started uh, writing songs and then eventually performing at McCabe's Guitar sh- Store mm-hmm. uh, on Pico or, and a couple of other little showcase places um, as Fondelier and Snow. Or as Ahmed Arrigan once said to me, you should just call yourself Fondle Her in the Snow. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you ever knew Ahmed. He was a funny man. But, um, you know, so sort of like fairly typical thing we, we would be playing around. And then well, at one of the occasions we were playing a little sort of afternoon uh, showcase at McCabe's, um, a girl that was a friend of Michael's and was a real, you know, sort of like our original Band, not a groupie, but she really loved what we were doing. Uh, brought um, uh, Phil Everly's ex-wife Jackie Everly uh, and Peter Asher's wife, then wife Betsy, mm-hmm. down wow. to hear us, uh-huh. along with another fellow named Michael O'Brien. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that sort of thing started really moving at that point because uh, uh, Betsy, um, you know, told uh, Peter about us and. And I don't know, they got some record people involved, and we added a, a drummer and a, and a lead guitar player and changed our name about five times and <laughs> ended up with this... It was all my fault, apparently. It was, it was this horribly bland name, Country. As that was the name of the group. And we got, <laughs> signed, we got signed to Clean Records, which was a subsidiary of, um, of, of Atlantic. And... Um, Oh yeah, and so so it was Ahmed Arrogant's you know sort of little boutique label. Uh, we and do you know who Terry Allen is? No, you ever check out his stuff? No. Ah, he's brilliant. Um, anyways, and Delbert McClinton. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it was, at that point it was Delbert, Delbert, and Glenn. Delbert and Glenn was the name. So we were all the first three acts signed to this this little boutique label called Clean Records. Okay. As in, everybody needs a clean record. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, right? And then, you know, we decided that what we needed to do, too, was to sort of, you know, find a house in Hollywood where we could, you know, do the band thing. And uh, so we did, and it was right on Sweetser Avenue, and um, which apparently shows up in a lot of people's bios from that era. Really? Musical, musical writers and stuff. Uh-huh. And we, um, you know, it was just all living together and doing, um, writing songs and doing naughty things. Um, and uh, eventually we went into the studio and um, we worked with Keith Olsen, was uh, not even a producer at that point. He was just a, uh, he was a damn good engineer, but he hadn't, his production career hadn't taken off. Uh-huh. Um, so we had our little band, it was me and Michael Fondelier and um, his brother, Stephen on bass, and a wonderful guitar player named Ian Espinoza, and uh, and then just a fantastic drummer and a complete comedian named Bobby Desimone. Uh, 
we ended up doing this record, you know, when it was sort of produced by Michael O'Brien and um, the guys in the band, and you know, it was a kind of a mishmash of, of production. And uh, that, that record just got re- uh, reissued and released um, on a little label out of England called Slipstream Records. And um, by um, a guy owned by Jason Smith. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me when I start, you know, wandering off the reservation here now. It just came out. I mean, I'm plugging that, and, and uh, it, it's uh, all been remastered, and there's a couple of bonus tracks on there. Very cool. It's really been kind of fun. It's also, it's, in the same way that the CD of Warren Weeby I did with, with Gabby Raya, right? Yeah. So this country thing was, um, we were really being touted. I mean, you know, Ahmed Erdogan personally came out and produced a track. Um, you know, Robert Stigwood was uh, the big, um, you know, our mm-hmm. publishing honcho. And uh-huh. there was quite a buzz going on about, how, you know, the band. And Ahmed said, that, I think you could be the next uh, uh, Buffalo Springfield and okay. all of those, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, but there were... There were internal problems in the band um, yeah. in terms of some people's um, choices, lifestyle choices. Right. And, and uh, we we were we were going along pretty nicely. Um, the, the album got released. It it didn't get a hell of a lot of play, and and, and frankly, we didn't think it was promoted. But at that point, uh, once the al- after the album had been released, um, um, our our early supporters, uh, diehard fans, uh, Betsy Asher and Jackie Everly, convinced Peter. Who was by at that time, you know, on top of the world with uh, James Taylor, right? And you know, just about to sign Linda Ronstadt, and mm-hmm. you know, to uh, they convinced him to you know come along and, and help shepherd the band and pull things together a bit, and and we started work on a on a second album with Peter kind of giving us some, you know, some gentle direction or just just he was sort of an adult, you know, <laughs> yeah. And the rest of us were trying to pull it together, but it didn't happen, and. Um, you know, um, Michael Fondler, poor fellow, um, just he had a really bad um, drug habit, um, and uh, he eventually died in his sleep a couple of years later. Wow! Yeah, hmm. and at at this time too, I had uh, well, the big gig that we played was at um, the a uh, uh, club called the Ashgrove. Do you, any of you remember? I, what I that am is? vaguely familiar with the Ashgrove. I've I've heard stories about it. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know about um, the Doug Weston's Troubadour. Of that course, was yeah. the, that was the, that was the big venue right. um, to play. And then the Ashgrove was like a, your hardcore folkies kind of club. Oh, okay. That's where people okay. like um, uh, Eric Von Ross or you know, uh, you know some real serious guys right. like who would perform with their dog on sitting on a chair and their their favorite hound by their side. You know? <laughs> okay. All right. That it was that kind of place, but um by the time we um we we uh, no, what happened is that Peter and uh, Atlantic Records um couldn't uh, put the money up and rented the club out cuz in those days you they they often did that in LA where you just, you know, you go to get all the the glitterati and and, and the rockerati and all that stuff is Bring it's a coming out party kind of for mm-hmm, bands, mm-hmm. and they they um, rented clubs like the Troubadour, Ashgrove, so forth. So um, and we uh, so we put on a we put on a hell of a good show that night, and we had already uh, 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 added some new material to it, and um, you know it was things were going along. We got um, I think it was 
maybe as a favor to Peter, we got put on uh, the uh, the bill with America, who was just playing America for the first time, yeah, and L.A. for the first time. Of course, they were wow. having a gigantic hit with a horse with no name. Right, so right. We, yeah, we got to open the, open the show to them, and cool. But the problem was is that um, uh, Michael couldn't couldn't handle it emotionally, and he was um, really stoned on stage. And you know, I'm, I I feel bad talking about Michael because. I really, I was very excited about um, the future of our songwriting collaboration, which is what I, the only thing I've ever really wanted and never quite got was just to have that one songwriting partner, sort of like a marriage where, you know, you have all these, you just create a a relationship that has ups and downs and fights and makeup and all that stuff, which provides, uh, as David Bowie would say, grist for the mill, Mm -hmm. yeah. But, you know, Michael um, couldn't handle it, and I could see his, I could sort of see his decline coming, and um, I just told the guys in the band um, that, you know, I'm sorry, I got to go do something else. Yeah. I can't, I can't go down down this road. So um, Peter Asher kept me and um, sort of handed the band back to its original manager, Michael O'Brien, and uh, I signed with. Well, I didn't even sign with Peter. It was all handshake. It was amazing. Hmm. Wow. Uh, and I started writing songs. Um, by myself for a, for a solo album, right? And this would have been oh boy, seventy seventy five. No, no, this is this was before Capital. Oh, before Capital. Oh, okay. Yeah. So yeah. So uh, after the country thing, when I walked away from that, it was about seventy one, seventy two, something like that. Yeah. Um, I had met my now wife of forty years, Mary Bell, at the Ashgrove gig. Um, the, all those many years ago, uh, the, uh, my friend Richie Hayward, who played. I, I knew all the little feet guys. We were I was part of that crowd. Right. He brought he brought her down to to hear the band, and we saw each other, and went boom, that was it. So uh, off I went then uh, with Peter to start writing songs, uh, which I felt incumbent upon me to be in the James Taylor mode, which was really not my yeah. strong suit. Yeah. But but I did. I you know I, I wrote ten tunes, and and uh, you know Peter. Well, I wrote more than ten, but to get ten, you know, I, you know, uh, I'd have to throw them at Peter, and then he'd say yes or no. Right. But then we went into, um, I think it was, might have been Ocean Way. I can't remember. You know what? I, I can't even. Remember. Maybe it was Sunset Sound. Uh, we so we went in to record the album, and you know, we had Russ Conkel on drums, Danny Korch, and we had James's band, you know, behind me. Sure. And I was still signed to Clean Records, and having a having a pretty stormy relationship with uh, the the the, uh, the president of the label Earl McGrath. <laughs> um and so I made this record with Peter and it's all kind of like singer songwriter you know um sensitive stuff um which he hated so <laughs> he, he, he he put it on the shelf he canned it so <laughs> and it's not like it's not like I'm I'm um not proud of the record, but I mean, it's just, I was trying to be somebody I wasn't, and it was very right. intimidating too, because after, you know, we go out and we do a track and come back to listen to playback, and then sort of Peter and the, and the other guys would all be talking about the latest James Taylor fabulous thing that was happening, and you know, and I sort of felt <laughs> like I was a guest at my own session. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyways, no, but no bad feelings, and, and um, in fact, later on, Peter uh, recorded a number of my songs, and uh, we had a couple of hits together, so 
Hey, Tom and Eddie, let's uh, take a break. And uh, I want to listen to a track that um, everybody's going to immediately recognize. And this was a huge hit that you wrote for Bonnie Raitt called Love Sneaking Up on You. From our guest today, Tom Snow. started to mention Capitol Records here a second ago, and I think it was in 75 when you signed with Capitol as a solo act. And, you know, you recorded two albums with them, um, Taking It Mm -hmm. All in Stride and, and of course, the self-titled album Tom Snow in 1976. And, Mm -hmm. you know, both of those albums, you know, we noticed are just loaded with incredible talents who are still in their 
kind of early in their careers, you know, like Stevie Nicks and Elliot Randall, yeah. Dean Parks, Chuck Finley, Waddy Wachtel, John Clemmer, and others. And, but Eddie and I couldn't help but notice that uh, David Page also played on three <laughs> tracks of your self-titled album, including uh, your song titled Rosanna. And yeah, isn't that interesting? <laughs> <laughs> did he at least take you out to lunch after he wrote that hit for the for his band Toto? <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's just what you know. You, you, one wonders, but you know, David was doing. I mean, he's a great, great player. And for the second album, there was um, basic rhythm section was me on um, uh, grand piano mm-hmm. um, and or electric, and then David would play. If I was playing grand piano, uh, Dave Page would play the you know some electric thing. Yeah. And if I were if I went over then and played like the little Wurlitzer, he'd he'd go play organ or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I had that, and then the, the, the rhythm section was uh, Toto. It was Jeff Porcaro. Yeah. Uh, oh, sorry, it was Wilton Felder because I love Wilton, and he had played on my Peter Asher album. Thing. Right, right. That's cool. So, so, so Wilton, I think, played on all the tracks. I can't remember. Um, uh, on the Tom Snow album, along with um, Jeff, David, and me, so that right, was sort of right. the core rhythm thing. We noticed that Jeff played on both of both of those records, and of course, Jeff's a real favorite subject of our listeners here at Inside Music Cast. And I was going to ask you what your recollections of uh, working with Jeff was on those albums. Uh, well, it, you know, I mean, he's a person who I just I'm I'm in the same club as the rest of the rest of you guys. I just love love it, love yeah. him. Absolutely. Um, the first album, the Taking It All in Stride album, the the producer for that was um, help me. Anyways, he uh, he had produced uh, the Jose Feliciano um, "Light My Fire" that became a big hit. Oh yeah, it's on the tip of my tongue. Yeah, um. well, Rick, I, I, this is terrible. Oh, I'm 65. What the hell? <laughs> this is the shit that happens. Um, uh, so the way we went about doing the take, taking yeah. it all in stride album, it was kind of interesting, really. Rick um, loved the the feel of uh, of um, that came out of me when I when I was playing and singing at the same time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so he he had the idea that we would go into the studio, and um, he got Milt Holland to sit in the booth for every track and just play a little shaker to keep whatever tempo. Time right. down. Uh-huh. So, so the whole record start. Every song in that record is uh, initially just me and the and a work, a live work vocal, while I was playing. Okay. Uh, then um, he, I think it was Jimmy Haslip. No, that's, is that right? No, he brought in a, a bass player that he loved from from Nashville, who then put on some bass, mm-hmm. and it kind of basically was layering, and then. Um, after all was said and done, I think he tried Jim Gordon on a couple of tracks, but uh, eventually he um, found Jeff Porcaro, mm-hmm. who I think at the time was maybe 19. <laughs> yeah, that's about right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he um, came and overdubbed all the drums, but at that point, Rick didn't want me in the studio, you know. Rick Jared. It, yeah. Jared. Which one? Rick, Rick Gerard. Yeah, Gerard. Yes, Rick Gerard. Right. You know, I mean, I, I, I don't know. He's, there was a dark side that suddenly appeared, and he, I got locked out of the <laughs> studio <laughs> for mixes and for and for the the uh, the Jeff uh, doing his overdubs, and which was, I thought was amazing that you know Jeff could just sit in there and over, you know, 
playing just a piano and a shaker and, and, and maybe or maybe not a bass. I can't remember what order it all went in. And I don't think I ever actually... I might have met Jeff briefly mm-hmm. uh, during that period. Um, mm-hmm. But it wasn't until um, the second album for Capitol that, uh, when it was, that was uh, Michael J. Jackson producing that, uh, you know, we got to be, we got to be good friends, uh, well, very friendly there, and then later on we, you know, through one of my Richard Perry years and stuff, I saw a lot of Jeff and yeah. played a lot, on a lot of tracks with him. And so, and, and that, the second album for Capital was my artistic statement, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. and, um, Capital hated it, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This performing career of mine by this time is is mo- pushing seven or eight years, you know, mm-hmm. uh, not not working out too well. <laughs> yeah, but but what is wasn't wasn't it after your second during this second album that you're, you know you're you're mentioning your creative side coming out that actually you made a conscientious uh, sort of transition from the singer songwriter to basically s- songwriting. It was during this exactly. period that you were shifting gears, right? Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, that's a, that's. Right on, right, and it's spot on. Um, the thing is that, that both those albums, those solo albums for me at Capitol, you know, I was sent out on a, on a, uh, I opened to Linda Ronstadt on, on her at the Universal Amphitheater at the Heart, uh, you know, when she had Heart Like a Wheel. Um, that was her huge, I mean, she was yeah. huge. Yeah, okay? absolutely. So, and, and Peter did a favor for, uh, for me and for his former associate, Jack Oliver, who, who mm-hmm. had left Peter to, to, um, Manage me because he really believed in in, in me. Um, so uh, yeah. So, anyways, what what that uh, those two albums did accomplish was a a, a buzz over in town about me. I guess mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, people knew who I was, and and a woman named Kathleen Carey, who was uh, you know like a super publishing, just fantastic person, um, became a real champion of mine. Okay, and um, she was. Uh, Working uh, with Richard Perry at that time, so this is now seventy six, seventy seven. So yeah, so the the period between uh, when Capital dropped me, which was the summer of or fall of nineteen seventy six, she came over and was um, became a friend and a uh, you know a real supporter, both emotionally and artistically, and and she knew a lot of people. I mean, she was she her own career was. Um, taking off. And um, she said, look, have you ever thought about writing with and for other people? I said, yeah, oddly enough, the first thing I wanted to do when I left Berkeley was that, because Bert Backrack was my hero. And all I wanted to do was sit in, a, sit in a room somewhere behind the lines and learn how to write hits. Yeah. But it took me seven years to figure that out. <laughs> yeah, right. Anyway, so she, um, she took me under her wing and... Um, you know, I, I began to collaborate with various different people, and um, I think the, the the song that really opened the door for me, as, as far as working with Richard Perry, was a tune I wrote with Kerry Chater called um, um, "Oh God." Oh, it's good, 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 good. oh uh, leave well enough alone, baby. Yeah. So we wrote this tune. Kerry was a chapel writer. And we wrote the tunes, conventional guys writing, and then okay. using the publishing house's uh, little studio to make the demo. Uh-huh. And Kathy took it over to Richard Perry, and and Richard was in the middle of you know collecting material and 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 starting to record Leo's follow-up album to Endless Flight. And you know, 
Richard Flip for the song wanted to meet me, and Leo and I got, you know, we became friends, and then uh, I ended up co-writing half the record uh, with Leo. So that was a, that was a huge break for me because it was yeah. a a break into the big commercial zone of the you know yeah. songwriting. Yeah, and you know um, other people on the album were like writing for the album were uh, Albert Hammond and Carol Bayer Sager, and you mm-hmm. know. So I was sort of um, sort of moving up into the ranks of, of you know that kind of songwriter. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really what the the capital. Uh, albums did for me. Very cool. Well, hey, I've got a question um, that comes from our Inside Music Cast correspondent in Sweden, and his name is Mikhail Ingström. And <clears throat> uh-huh. um, he said he saw a post on your website explaining how uh, the beautiful song Dialogue by Michael Johnson came about. And he said that you mentioned that when you saw the lyric draft by Patty Dahlstrom, that you immediately felt it was going to be a joy writing music for it. And can you, he wants to know if you can tell us a little bit about that and the creative process of working uh, a song out from another person's lyric sheet. Oh, that's a great question. For me, um, sometimes um, in the case of dialogue, or um, there's another song. There's a few songs that jumped off the page, literally jumped. I mean, I they just almost wrote themselves. Yeah. Dialogue um, was a joy to joy to do, and it was um, it didn't quite write itself. I had to you know I had to dig you know to to find the the, the good stuff. But um, I remember a song I wrote with Jerry Goff, and he. Um, Handed me a lyric called Ronio, which is on uh, the, the Warren Weedy uh, reissue that right. Gabriel has, has oh, yeah. done. Yep. And I mean, that song just was just like just fell into my lap. I was given that melody. I just I just could see, you know. So uh, it's it's hard to say, but the creative process of writing music two words is um, sometimes a little tricky because you want as a composer to be more uh, musical in terms of the the length of your phrases and and the um, the tempo of the song and all, all those musical aspects, which um, a full blown lyric by a person who is not necessarily a composer doesn't really present you. You know, you, so you're a little bit handcuffed. Right. Um, and uh, but if it's a good lyric, you know, I will find a way. Mm-hmm. And I did. I used to. You know, I'll tell you one funny story. It was uh, Marty Panzer. Who wrote a lot of hits with Barry Manilow? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, he he's a great guy, and he he came over. Uh, oh gosh, when was this? Probably in the eighties at some point. He really, really wanted to write with me, and, and I was having hits with um, you know Cynthia and and all those thrill building people who moved west. <laughs> um, and he, so he brought me a lyric. We wrote a couple of cool songs together, but he brought me this one uh, lyric that um, I can't I can't believe it's really you is the title. Yeah, you know, and he would just come over, and we'd have a, have a smoke, and you know, have a drink or something like that, and then chat, and then I say, "Okay, Marty, I'll see you later, man. I'm just going to go close the doors now and work on this tune." So I ended up, uh, I'm sure he felt that I what what he wanted, even though we didn't, he didn't even say uh, mention it specifically. I'm sure he wanted me to write some big, juicy, you know, ballad. Right, and instead I wrote a, <laughs> I wrote a little up tempo thing to it, and um, and, I, and which I loved, you know. Um, and so when I brought him over, I, I called him up. You know, it's what I always did. I would call Cynthia, whomever, if I, if I had something finished or if I needed their help. I said, Marty, come on over. I got I got this man. You're gonna dig this. So he was all excited, and he came in the mm-hmm. came in the studio, and I put it on the I put it on the uh, on the speakers, and 
poor fella, you know, <laughs> he started, he went pale and he sort of like was looking at me with like, you betrayed me kind of high. <laughs> but I said, well, I'm sorry, Marty, that's what I, that's what I saw, you know. So yeah. Just in terms of that process, the thing um, of writing two lyrics, the thing I loved the most was, um, and I learned this from Lowell George, too, mm-hmm. uh, was the best thing to have is a title. Mm-hmm. Just a title. Because, you know, you can, you can look at a title and, and um, you can imagine three or four or five different points of view um, to bring that title into a story. Um, so that's fun. I mean, if you've got a really good title, and I used to, I think all songwriters in those days, you need know, carry around little bits of paper and stuff and constantly writing t- titles down. Like in Nashville, you can't even get through a meal. With anybody, without you know, with, with somebody saying, "Wait a minute, that sounds like a good title." Like, yeah, oh, wait, a minute. wait a minute, that that what you just said that sounds like a good title. Probably sounds like a good title. And that's going to be a title, so let's write a song that that sounds like a good title. You know. Anyway. So I love I love working to um, titles because um, as uh, as as a, a melody would develop, and I generally always. Um, wrote certainly ballads, um, you know, just sitting at the piano and kind of um, mouthing what Quincy Jones uh, uh, once told me were the quaalude lyrics, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, man, I know what you mean, Quincy, you know, because you're just, you're, you're, you're trying to get all emotional and, and try to pull out of the ether this, some wonderful piece, musical phrase, and, you know, you're making very strange, it sounds like you're, talking in tongues half the time, you know. <laughs> but you gotta you gotta have something to let the music come out and it, yeah. and it would never be da da dee doo doo dum for me, you know, or la la la. It was always some kind of strange, you know, um language that maybe the Mayans used or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so I hope that sheds some light on yeah. that. Yeah, I'm sure Mikhail appreciates that answer. That was some good. That was some good info. Um, okay. You know, you returned to uh, the studio in, in '82 for one more singer-songwriter album called "Hungry Nights" on the Arista label for Clive Davis. And you know, we we get a lot of requests asking, you know, people asking us if we know if this album will ever get re-released, maybe as a, an import of some sort. Is there any chance of that? Yeah, I don't know. I was I I get you know emails through my website and on facebook asking the same question it was a, quite a big record apparently in japan mm-hmm. had a lot of success there and yep. i guess in more places that i realized because um i i i people write me from italy and spain and all over the world saying wow i love this record now yep. we get it here's the thing though it's it's you know clive sold arista to uh sony or no yeah maybe to sony and there was a big you know it it's it's easy to research it on Wikipedia, but the, you know the label got sold and then sold again, and and uh, who knows what happened to the master tapes? I I actually have a master um, pressing that's in in pretty good shape. You know, I mean it's it's really not crackly and poppy. And there was a um, um, there is a CD. It was a bootleg CD. Was it Big Pink? No, that was Country. I'm just looking at my music library here because. Uh, there was a re-release that came out of Japan, I guess. Yeah, it was Japanese. Okay. And um, with a totally different cover, but they had a, a very good quality sound. I mean, see, you know, yeah. CD quality. The, the problem is that when I recorded the album, um, I think it was still pre-CD. Am I right? 
82. You're right on the cusp of like the CDs coming into play. So it was probably yeah. prior to CD, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it was. I knew the Walkman, you know, had come on the scene. And, yeah. And and things were, you know, tech, technology was moving very rapidly yeah. for especially for musicians at that point. But I, um, you know, I've talked about this with my publishing administrator, Karen Schaubin, and said, we've made some inquiries about where is the master and how can we get it, and it's it's a uh, it would be one of those, you know, epic journeys through all kinds of, you know, stuff to, to try to locate it. I, on the other hand, I do have um, good um, files of the songs, of the mixes that um, I got from the uh, Japanese album, which I think I went ahead and bought for about $300 on eBay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I, I spent more money on that one CD than, than the whole record ever made in royalties. <laughs> yeah. Wow. But um it, you know it's something now because of because I find myself getting sort of you know reengaged with if if not creatively reengaged at least reengaged with you know uh, posting songs and and having you know I'm having a lot of fun with that so that that I might just you know start thinking about going on that uh, detective trail try to find find uh if the master exists can we get it back yeah, how much would it cost you know really? that would be yeah. very cool yeah, because Arsa doesn't exist anymore. You know, right. I mean, it, it's done. Yeah. So, but I see there's so much enthusiasm out there that. Um, yeah. You know. So, I mean, and there is this there is this copyright recapture rule. That I'm, are you familiar with the law that they just recently passed? Where oh, no. After after 28 years, I think it is. Is it 28 and, years? Yeah, it's. Um, yeah, you can recapture um, your your all your copyrights. You know. Oh, that's cool. Back. But it had, they had to have been written after 1978. If, uh, if um, pre 1978, you, you have to die, and then they give them back to you or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but but there's, there are there are a lot of my colleagues and former you know contemporaries, let's say who who are um, you know got good catalogs, yep. and uh, and they've been in the business long enough so that um, they could recapture, you know, their copyrights that may have been held mm. by, you know, Warner Brothers Music or EMI. Right. Who knows. That's interesting. One thing I did was, uh, apart from the split publishing deal I had with Richard Perry, which is a three-year deal, I never, ever signed with a major publisher. I was given that advice by uh, my, my um, business manager at the time, Wally Franson, who was also um, <clears throat> business manager for Linda Ronstadt and, yeah. and uh, so forth. And I, I took that advice to heart because, um, you know, and I'm glad I did because in lieu of the big you know, six-figure whatever, you know, advance, uh, you know, you have your own, you got, I would give this advice to any yeah. any um, uh, aspiring songwriter, especially someone who is writing for other people. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, hold on to your publishing until you're absolutely, you know, going under, you know. Yeah. Um, that's good a advice. great little anecdote. <laughs> but, oh, I know. So, yeah, Wally Franson, he also managed Andrew Gold. Okay, and, um, all right. Andrew was doing real, real well right around the same time as I was starting to starting to pick up my career. But Andrew, I guess Andrew had uh, taken an advance of, from either ASCAP or BMI and, and kind of went through it a little too fast. Mm-hmm. And um, he came to Wally one day and he said, oh, man, I, I, I need money, you know, so I want to sell my publishing catalog. And Wally said, absolutely not. You know, we can get you through this lean period and whatever. Just do not yeah, sell, yeah. you know. 
So the next thing that happens is, um, was it the Golden Girls show? Pick yes. Up, thank you yep. for being in it, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. So that song, and over in its lifetime, is like paid uh, who knows how many more uh, times the, wow. the price that for its whole catalog back then. Yeah, yeah that's sad. <laughs> that's sad. I know. I know. But uh, but at least he didn't sell his catalog. So yeah. Well, that's good. He held on to it. Yeah. Hey, well, Tom, let's take a trip back to that 1982 album titled Hungry Nights that was uh, produced by Dean Parks. And uh, let's check out a track called Time of Our Lives. It's late at night Both of us tired You dim the light I light a fire You turn off the phone Now we're really alone Having the time of our lives Oh, what a mood Here in the dark a passing remark You say it's grand Now we both understand That we're having the time of our lives Some folks go out of Love forever 
Well, you know, Tom, it's really impossible to discuss everything we'd like to talk with you today with the amount of time we have. But I do want, we do want to devote some time to talk about your new um, release uh, that's, that's just coming out called Original Demos featuring um, yeah. uh, you know, the vocalist who, um, whose legend seems to be growing with each year since his passing, Warren Wiebe. And um, yeah. let's begin with how you came um, to first learn about Warren and your initial impressions uh, upon meeting him. Um. The uh, the songwriting community in um, in L.A. at the time, um, we I, we all sort of found out. I'm I'm pretty sure it was David Foster who um, found found Warren. I, mm-hmm. I I know that the first I knew or heard of, of Warren was because he was singing um, and working with David Foster. Mm-hmm. And then um, you know. Um, when you're a songwriter and you got to make a demo, one, obviously the most important thing, other than the material, is the vocalist. And, you know, there's some good singers around, you know, doing that stuff, but a lot of times it's a headache to get them to understand what, mm-hmm. you're, you, know, what you really, really want. You have to spend yeah. hours and hours and hours. So at some point, um, I got in touch with Warren. I, I'm sorry, guys, that I can't remember exactly when, but it was probably about a about a year or so after, you know, Warren's name was, was circulating and people were using him on demos and Steve uh, Dorf, obviously, and, and he was doing a lot of work with David. And um, he was then also singing, I believe, the national anthems out at uh, Lakers games and stuff like that. So I didn't, I had never actually met him uh, the day he arrived at my house. And um, uh, I'm looking out the front door and he's come right on time. And he comes up and it's little, what's it, 1982, what was this, 84? No, it was it 90s, 90s, yeah. So he had some funny little tiny um, Korean sub-mini compact. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting car. And then I, it was like a clown show in the circus. Out <laughs> pops this gigantic human being who's like six five, and maybe, maybe looking at north of 300 pounds and uh, wearing some sort of funny clothes and... And he walked with a kind of a, like a giant Charlie Chaplin kind of waddle. <laughs> I thought, oh my! So, and I guess we all know that Warren had had um, really a tough time mentally, and he had big issues. And I'm, I would imagine it was um, like, and I don't want to be quoted as you know some kind of weird armchair psychiatrist, but like a sort of Aspergerish syndrome, okay. you know, yeah, highly yeah. functioning autism. All I know is that the guy came into the house and whatever song it was, um, he listened to it once and I said, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I said, do you need to hear it again? And he went, mm-mm, mm-mm. Wow. <laughs> so we, I put him in the, uh, I put him in the little vocal room that I had and, and I said, you ready? And he went, uh-huh. <laughs> and he just ripped off this, I mean, I was just, wow. my mouth dropped and oh, I my went, goodness. oh my, we have something very, very special here. <laughs> wow. He actually ended up um, doing some live performances, and he put, um, for me, it was one of the greatest honors ever, uh, he put Ronio into his act, and I went to see him at a little jazz club um, in, in um, where the hell is it, Encino, it's on Ventura Boulevard somewhere. He called me up and said, oh, I'm playing there, would you like to come down? And I don't know if you've ever, did you ever know Warren at all, or... No, uh, no, no, no. Didn't all. get a chance to ever meet him, no. no. Yeah. Well, he was such a sweetheart. I mean, he had this funny way of talking, you know, sort of like in this kind of voice like this. Yeah. 
that would be great. Oh, boy, I sure do like this song. I sure do. Wow. And then, wow. you know, he'd open his, he'd start singing, and it was a whole other story. Wow. So, Interesting. So I went down to, to catch his set at, um, this, this, it was a small club in Ventura, but, and he was up there, he had a good band behind him, and, you know, he was dressed up, he looked good, you know, he wasn't wearing his sort of clown clothes, he was wearing, <laughs> you know, some sharp stage clothes. Yeah. And um, so he gets into doing Ronnie O, and then he gets to the part where there's a, there's a guitar solo, and he just is standing there in front of the band, looking off into the lights, and kind of like, you know, just very gently grooving to the guitar solo. And when the eight bars of guitar solo were over, the band went back into, you know, sort of the, the second half of the verse. And Warren, Warren hadn't come back from wherever he was. <laughs> so he was, he was still tripping yeah. on stage. And then he suddenly realized and kind of laughed and then started, you know, pick the song up again. But, uh, yeah, yeah he, was, he, was, he was a magnificent person. I, I would use him on everything, but I was afraid of, you know... Uh, you know, everything sounding too, you know, too similar, you know. Yeah, right. Oh, it's another Tom Snow one. We need that one. There's always that thing, you know, right. to, to worry about. Well, but, you know, Gabriel Rye I, I had gotten in touch with me years ago. I think when he first got, um, is it uh, Sonante y Contante going? And I right. guess he had done the Steve Dorff thing, and we had been corresponding off and on through email. And it was, uh, I think it was, What's it with thirteen twelve? Like sort of the latter part of two thousand eleven, he, he sort of popped the question if I'd be in, if I had enough demos in my archives. Yeah, and I said, you know, I think I do. And so I went through and and, and lo and behold, found ten or twelve songs um, that were all in good shape. There was only one of the demos where there was some warble stuff. I mean, demos, they're demos, you know. And I was doing the. Um, it was all at my home, so I was the uh, you know, the engineer as well, and I'll be the first to admit I'm, I'm not the greatest engineer, but uh, anyway, so found the um, found the, the, the demos and sent them to Gabby, and we kept talking back and forth about things, and I turned them on to um, a photographer here in Santa Barbara who named Chuck Place, who had done the photos of me for the Berkeley Today magazine back in 2000 when I was, you know, given the award, mm-hmm. the Distinguished Alumnus Award, and, um, you know, um, I put him together with uh, Gabby, and, and he, Chuck, the photographer, agreed ultimately just, just to do it for free, but, yeah. you know. Uh, and so we used the photos uh, that were taken for that the Berkeley ad. Uh, so they're, um, uh, you know, and this, what is the thing? Uh, full disclosure, yeah. um, the rug that I was wearing, uh, it's gone, okay? So... <laughs> <laughs> So that hair, that was never mine, and it's gone. <laughs> it's a lot easier getting up in the morning now and just brushing not a whole lot of hair. <laughs> have you seen the package? Yeah, yeah, we have. Absolutely. Yep. I thought Gabby did a sensational Oh, it's job. beautiful. Yeah, it looks really nice. He's a fantastic person. I just love him. Well, um, I, I've got a question. Were, were these demos uh, basically in the form we find them on its release, or did, did a lot of fixes, a lot of changes have to be made? No, they're they're... Pretty much verbatim. Okay. Um, Jimmy Bell, uh, who uh, worked with Gabby, Jimmy is the um, the mastering engineer. Um, there wasn't anything added musically or taken out or edited or anything like that. There was just some some sort of tricky little cleanup jobs that had to be done, and I did a, one or two of them by revisiting the 
not the full track, but I, but I have these songs all archived in the Pro Tools, and I was able to go back and you know yeah. get rid of some extraneous non-musical noise here and there. But they're the, they're the they're the the demos that that were made in the mid '90s. That's it. That's very cool. I guess there was a song on the uh, demos uh, CD. It's "Love Has a Mind of Its Own" that Ray Charles. Uh, yeah. He heard Warren Weeby's version and, and he chose it straight away. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I wrote that with Jimmy Scott, English writer. Jimmy and I uh, wrote quite a lot together, and and we were the kind of um, collaboration of we both wrote words and we both wrote music, sort of thing, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I I wanted. I said, Jimmy, I'd like to write like kind of like an uh, an Al Green kind of tune, you know. Yeah. Like yeah. That. And so he was totally. It, 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 Jimmy's English, and he just loved that idea. So we managed, we managed to finally get the song written, and then um, my daughter, Tina Snow, who was running my songs at the time, she was my publishing rep, um, she took, as soon as she heard the demo, she said, oh my God, this is going to be great. Richard Perry's producing Ray Charles. I'm going over to Richard's house now. So, uh, you know, because I'd had that relationship with Richard, and, and we were still friends, and, and he's a very open guy in that respect. And he's a, and he just loves songs. I mean, he's a he's a you know a producer yeah. who really has an ear for a good song. So, uh, long story short, um, she went over to Richard's house. He played it played it to him in the you know in his music room. And next thing I know, I'm in the studio with um, one of the guys that co-produced or sort of was this Richard's co-producer or I don't know, not co-producer, but okay. I can't think of his name right now. Well, oh, it's really bad. But we, um, uh, he asked me to come down and, and uh, lay down a bass line, basically the bass line that I came up with on the demo. So, um, the, uh, so the track was put together. I think he, uh, had, there was a little rolling drum machine that I could play the bass line to, and, and I might have put some guide chords, you know, just for, for singing purposes from, an, I don't know, some electronic piano device. Mm-hmm. But it was really about getting the, the feel of the bass line. So once that was done... Um, the the twenty four the, the two inch masters were sent over uh, to Ray across the country, and I I can't remember if he, if he was in Memphis or Florida, but he went ahead down there and put on his vocal, um, and maybe Richard had went flew flew over. I, mean, I can't imagine Richard wasn't there, but you know Ray kind of liked to work on his own. You know, he said, "Don't want, don't want to," you know. Don't bring a lot of people, man. I'll just sing a song. Yeah, That's right. <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. So, you know, and then so then it comes back and they finished the track and, uh, you know, did all the the final sweetening to the track in L.A. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, good old Ray put, or maybe it was Richard, uh, had uh, uh, Mavis Staples come in and do the... Anyways, it was a great thing. Oh, yeah. oh yeah, the other thing is I had to rewrite, Jimmy and I had to rewrite a lyric for Richard, uh, um, a small change... Um, you know, this, this is what happens. I mean, you know, writing is, um, I always, whenever I've done a seminar or, or, or a TED talk I gave a little while ago, um, I always try to emphasize that writing is rewriting. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, that's a hard thing to learn, especially for young, for someone who's up and coming. And wow. it's just, it's an achievement to them in, in their own mind just to get a song written. Then you have to realize that um, you just better be ready to rewrite, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, oh, no. You know, like Melissa Manchester and I did that for Barbara Streisand. She she and I wrote a song called "Just One Lifetime" for uh, Melissa's um, 
one of Melissa's after albums back uh-huh. in, I guess, geez, I guess this is sort of in the nineties. And then, you know, um, five years goes by or something like that. And, um, Melissa calls me up and said, Hey, um, we just played just one lifetime to Barbara and she really loves it, but she, you know, but she wants a completely different lyric, you know? Wow. <laughs> so, um, we had to write a new bridge and, or whatever, but uh, you know, the idea of the plum of a Barbara Streisand cut was yeah. perfectly fine for us. You know, right, right. I, Miles Davis once said, how can I be melodic when the money is so spasmodic? <laughs> That's classic. I've, I've heard that. That's you know, how can I so be sp- melodic spasmodic. when the money is so spasmodic, man? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I thought that was good, so I made up my own one, and I said, I, I don't get inspired until I'm hired. So, <laughs> there you right. go. <laughs> Take a little of the romance out of the whole thing. Hey, it's business. It's not true either, because no one ever, very rarely did anyone ever pay me to get up and go right. <laughs> exactly right. Hey, Tom, let's take one final break uh, so we can check out a track from your original demos project. And this one's called You're Welcome in My Life from our guest today, Tom Snow on Inside Music Cast.
Hey, before we end the interview, you know, we, we were wondering what your current, what your thoughts are right now on the current state of songwriting today in pop music, and uh, and is there uh, anybody out there whose work you're really, um, you know, you're really digging, you know, that's really caught your attention? Yeah, that's interesting. You know, when I finally decided to, you know, just hang up the the writing thing, I I really pulled away from the music biz and. and you know, not just um, mm-hmm. emotionally and mentally, but, you know, I moved up to Santa Barbara. We moved up here in Montecito, actually, and built a house, and I started taking golf lessons, you know. All right. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, I was, you know, I thought, okay, well, this is great. I'm not going to be proactively writing so much anymore, and this will now give me the chance to listen, because I never, I really didn't listen too much mm-hmm. when I was writing. I was aware of what was going on around me, as were all my my colleagues and contemporaries, but I, but for me, if I started listening, I, I become very passive, and I just, you know, I just love. I am a true music lover, and um, I felt that, uh, you know, I'd be just sitting, lying on the floor listening to music, and I couldn't get up to write my own, you know. So, yeah. um, the the great thing about retiring in that sense was that I went, oh, yeah, now I can listen, you know. Yeah. So. I have a iTunes library with about seventeen thousand pieces of music in it, and a lot yeah. of it, a lot of it classical, a lot of it jazz, and mm-hmm. there's lots of pop, and um, you know, and, and and Pandora Radio was just starting up, and uh, that turned me on to all kinds of stuff. Like I love that Euro Chill. Right, kind of, yeah. <laughs> I just do, you know. Yeah, and, me too. Um, I, I like, uh, for instance, I discovered the Brazilian girls through Pandora, and, yeah. you know. Yeah. They're fabulous. They're so smart. Or or Micatone, this German um, group that are just got a, a super groovy jazz thing going on. That but it's not like I mean it's it's jazz inflected, but it's yeah. it's good pop music. Um, I I I'll be honest with you. I don't watch the Grammys. I didn't. I taped it, but I just I couldn't bring myself to to sit down and do it. It's probably <laughs> it'd just be too difficult for me emotionally. I don't. Right. Yeah. Um, I did watch the Oscars. I mean, because I'm in the film academy, and um, um, that that one seems safe. But you know, <laughs> hey, hey, wasn't it interesting this year how uh, the orchestra was being wired in from uh, studio, the big studio in uh, the big room yeah, in Capitol Studio B in Capitol. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was really cool. I loved that. I didn't know. I thought that was really hip. I yeah, thought was that was cool. wild. Yeah, yeah, and they didn't miss a beat. Did they? Not at all. No. The timing with that is incredible because, you know, a lot of times when those guys are talking long and they started to ramp up the Jaws theme when, <laughs> right. and uh, boy, it was sure, sure enough when they cut off, boom, they were out and boom, they were right back into the next piece just exactly. without hesitation. Yeah. It was incredible. Yeah. No, they've been, uh, you know, I was on the executive um, branch of, of um, sorry, the executive committee of the music branch for about 10 years. And we would meet periodically and in, in particular around the months between, say, the, September and, um, well, you know, the, the, the nominating period and the voting period. And the, it was uh, so problematic with the, uh, with, with songs that were submitted and, and, um, there's just a lot, a lot of stuff that sure. goes on there. Yeah. Um, and I forgot the point. Why did I, why did I go there? What were we saying? Uh, no, we were just talking about, uh, pop, we were talking about yeah. writing today, you know, and what your thoughts yeah, were yeah. of the writing. Yeah. Well, just quickly, the thing about, um, the Jaws theme is that, um, you know, they we had to get really strict with people um, and play them off stage, or else the show would go on to be five, six hours. You know, so. yeah, exactly. That's right. That's right. 
Well, hey, Tom, um, yes. you know, the Project Original Demos is, is really a, another jewel in your amazing career, and we yes. want to thank you for taking time to, to talk with us today. And we strongly urge everybody listening to order this CD because it's, you know, I guess it's a limited pressing of only 1,000 units. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. And, and tell so, me the website where you can buy this. Yeah, so I guess if you go to www.warrenweedy.com, that uh-huh. is, and there's uh, there's Gabby's little um, introduction. You know, uh, Warren died on the same day my birthday is. Oh, really? Yeah, he took his life on October 25th. Oh, my God. And I was born on October 25th. It's interesting. Wow. So, but if you just go to warrenweeby.com, yep. then you'll find the um, how to go and where, and where to get the, the yeah. record or or go on my Facebook page. and Yeah. You know, and we'll make sure to post a link uh, on our Facebook page for it as no well. No doubt. No so everybody can check it out. Hey, you know, before we end the interview, I also want to give a special thanks to Inside Music Cast correspondent Scott Gross uh, for not only connecting us to you, Tom, but for uh, also assisting us with the content development for today's show. So we really appreciate that, Scott, and many thanks to you. Exactly yeah. right. Well, Tom, thanks so much for joining us on Inside Music Cast. Thank We've you so much. enjoyed all the great oh. stories and the time you've spent with us today. This has been fantastic. Good. Well, I hope you can manage to put together something coherent. Oh, <laughs> oh absolutely. <laughs> it but, was uh, great. It was great chat, Tom. Thank you so oh, much. Oh, I really enjoyed uh, chatting with you guys. And if you're ever out my way, you know, give a buzz and come up and have a drink and look at the view. Absolutely. Sounds good. Sounds right. good. Thanks again. Thanks, all right. Tom. All right. Okay, guys. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Special thanks to Tom Snow for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, Max Zape, Mikhail Ingstrom, Uwe Reith, Scott Sheriff, and Don Brightup for their continued support and content development for Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. Lost to the